0: Hello and welcome to another very special episode of the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, folks, good evening. I hope that you are doing well wherever you are in the world. It's Friday evening here in Tower Studios, so you know what that means. It's time for another episode of the CIA files, where I'll be discussing some of those CIA documents that were released by. The Black Vault website. I'm having a beer. It's Friday, so I'm going to have a beer and relax, and I hope that you do the same. Now, first and foremost, before I forget, I wanted to say from the bottom of my heart, I hope that everyone in the U.S. dealing with this winter storm, I hope that this gets over and done with very quickly. Now, I've known lots of really good people in Texas. When I was a boy, we went there several times, and we had lots of friends in the American Southwest. Now, a lot of people, if you don't live there or you haven't spent time somewhere like Texas or Florida, the thing is that those people aren't acclimatized to these cold snaps. So for example, where I was from, we were always used to cold weather. We always had a fireplace and firewood and all of that. A lot of these people in Texas, they just weren't prepared. I mean, it's just like where I live now. If we had the snow dumping and The extreme cold temperatures that Texas and Oklahoma and a lot of those other southern Midwestern and southern states have gotten, we would be struggling. I'm not going to lie. I'd be better than most because I've always got a plan B, but it's no joke. And I hope that every one of you listening is safe and well and make sure that you stay safe and look after your families. I know it's, again, it's a very difficult time. Everything is political in this day and age. Do your best to sort the political from life in general and just look after yourself, look after your loved ones, and look after your fellow humans. There are some things in this life that we can't replace, and human life is one of them. Once somebody's gone, they're gone. So if you've got some extra fuel or something, or something you can do to help your neighbors through this, by all means, do the right thing. At least ask if they need help or if there's something you can do. And if they say no, they've got it, hey at least you know that you did all you could to help it's really sad when i hear about people dying in their cars and that because they're trying to keep warm and hopefully this isn't a sign of things to come again a few years ago i remember europe had a really rough cold snap and obviously europe's a bit more used to it than parts of of the southern us but there were parts of europe that normally don't get this kind of weather that got slammed with it as well so all i'm saying folks is when it hits the fan. Look after your fellow humans. And don't forget, I I can't speak for everyone, but I know that 99% of the people hearing my voice, there have been times in our life where we've had other people support us. So, you know, make sure to look after people who are struggling. Just show that uh, that chari- that charitable side of our hearts. Make sure we look after our friends and family and loved ones and neighbors, just people in general. So, that's out of the way uh and again folks i do hope it clears very quickly i wish we could send you some of our southern weather from here to help speed it along but alas uh we can't so just hang in there do your best to hang in there so i've i've uh, i've said i've said my bit on that now one other thing i've had a few questions come through this week because i released the episode on wednesday and it's only friday but I've already had several questions about a couple of the News of the Damned articles that I read in the weekly program. So I know usually on the CIA show, I don't go too far outside of the files, but I'm going to tonight because I just like to address them. The first thing that was somebody sent to me was they said, well, JT, you you seem to have an issue with these autonomous vehicles and And uh, drones and that, well, wouldn't you rather have that than people killing each other? Well, look, I'm going to tell you something. There was a doctor who thought the same way in the 1800s. He was the man who invented the machine gun. Dr. Maxim. And that was his idea, was that if he created a weapon so horrific that it would basically scare the militaries of the world straight, And once they saw how destructive this weapon was and how many people it would kill, they'd never use it and they'd never go to war. Well, within 25 or 30 years of him inventing that machine gun, they were being used in the trenches of Europe to mow down their fellow man. So no, I'm sorry, I do not have faith in the militaries of the world to not use things like AI and autonomous weapons to kill other humans And like I say, if anything, as far as I'm concerned, it's just going to make it that much easier because a soldier may have a conscience. And, for example, like I say, a soldier, most soldiers, uh, I can't speak for everyone, but I would say the vast majority of humans and soldiers, even if they've been indoctrinated and everything else by a military or by a government, when you tell them to kill their fellow people from whatever nation they're from, they're going to balk at that machines don't robots don't who's going to stop it no one that's the bottom line and we all know we've seen it these autonomous vehicles are going to be a heck of a lot harder to destroy or take out than other people so i don't want to go all doom and gloom but all i'm saying is i don't for a moment believe that the militaries of the world are just going to fight robot against robot and leave us out of it that's not not going to happen sorry if they're going to be used for anything, they're going to be used to people under control and keep people towing the line. And I'm not speaking about any government in particular. Anybody who's trying to read between the lines and say, "Oh, you're having a go at at my country or that country," this goes for everybody. Okay, we're all humans, and I have no time for any government that wants to use this type of machinery to kill other people, whether it's their own citizens or others. And like I say. You look at nearly every country in, in history and in every strong nation, every empire, every kingdom, at some point or another, they've turned their armies or military power inwards and they'll use it to crush people within the borders as well as they will without. So that's where I'm going to leave it. But no, uh, like I say, that's my answer to that question. I definitely don't think that there's going to be some embargo of... Uh, using these against their fellow man. It's just not going to happen, my friends. And the reality is, even let's say that every military general in the world said that, oh, we're not going to do this. Guess what? You're replaceable. They just fire you and get somebody who will do what they're told. That's just the reality of it. So, uh, yeah, I don't hold out a lot of hope for something like that. Now, uh, the other article that's really stirred up quite a bit is the the story about um, from Anthony Bregaglia saying that he's got a FOIA, basically showing that the U.S. military has tested alien wreckage, UFO wreckage. uh, For lack of a better term, I said alien, but uh, just wreckage that's not of this world, meaning built by current mankind civilization and the reason i say that is there's so many possibilities of what ufo's could be i don't want to paint myself into a corner now one of the one of the comments that i had was someone on social media because they saw my one of my little uh, audiograms and they basically messaged me and they said oh well that guy you know he's just he's drinking the Kool-Aid and he's one of those people that all they all they do everything is everything's a, a flying saucer everything's an alien Well, no, and I'll tell you why. If you go on this gentleman's website, and like I say, there's a link in the last show notes, you will read that there are several cases that are kind of pillar cases in the UFO community, and he has basically come out and said, no, these were hoaxes, or no, these are... Now, I'm going to be very careful in the way that I word this and how I tread, because you should know me by now, very rarely will I attack someone, but... I personally, a lot of the cases that he's basically said they're this or they're that, that's his opinion. And that's fine. We're all entitled to an opinion. But again, me personally, I don't like people who say definitively it was this or that, unless no different than the scientist that comes forward and says, I want proof. Well, guess what? You're going to claim big things like some of these really famous UFO cases were hoaxes. I want proof. And I don't just want proof that you talked to some guy and he told you he knew one of the hoaxers, or you talked to somebody on the phone who admitted that he was part of it, but he doesn't want to come forward. Look, that could be all legitimate. All I'm saying is, same, it goes both ways. Extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. And I'm sorry, me personally, this is me speaking for me. I just don't buy that a lot of the things that he's claimed are hoaxes or not real. are that way. And again, that's not an attack on him. It's just a difference of opinion. And I really respect the fact that he's taken the time to look at a lot of these cases. I haven't had a chance to go through on his website and read every article he's done. But I mean, look, he's definitely dedicated to what he does. And just because I don't necessarily agree with his opinion on everything, like I say, it doesn't mean that I think he's some terrible person. And uh, I think the world could use a lot more of that right now because. Especially in the political divide, if you don't agree with me, if you don't agree with my party, you're the Antichrist. And I'm sorry, it's that's just not the reality of the world. Now I was talking to Connor from Bigfoot Anonymous earlier on today and I recorded a conversation we had that will be out at some point in the future, and I'm not gonna lie, it will be a while because I've got several other interviews in the can. But we were having this same conversation and I basically said, The older you get, the more you find out everything's not black and white. More and more of it is gray. And it's just like, it's, it's just the same with this. People pushing these uh, political agendas and basically saying, if you don't agree with everything that my politician says, you're evil. Now, I'm sorry, BS. It, I'm just so tired of this overly politicized agenda across the world. And I know why they do it. And I know why they seek to divide and conquer us as people and as humanity as a whole. Because, again, at the end of the day, number one, it's a lot easier to rule people when you're divided and you're against each other, when you're hating each other based on religion and skin color and ideology and everything else. It's a lot easier to control you, number one. And number two, why do we need them to be in charge and make decisions and that if we figure out that we can solve these things ourselves? And so I think that. By and large, there are several groups in this world, and I'm not going to name them, I'm not going to go, because honestly, folks, like I say, I've told you a hundred times, I don't have all the answers. But I do believe, uh, in in the bottom of my heart, that there are several groups in this world who do not have our best interests as humanity in their mind. They don't care about you and I. They care about them and their cliques and their family and their little circle and taking care of them. They could give two squirts about us. Again, that's just my feeling, but I've seen it borne out time and time and time again. The people at the top of the food chain, they're living in a different world. They might as well be living on Mars, okay? They might as well already be setting up the colony there before Musk's rockets get there, because the reality is they live in a completely different reality that you and I do. Now, I don't know. Maybe I'm talking, maybe a billionaire's listening to this, but I highly doubt it. And uh, like I say, I'm not saying that there aren't good people that have money, but very few people at the very, very top of the food chain are us, working people that worked hard to get those billions of dollars. Most of these people either had connections, friends, connections in the government. They had insider knowledge, things like that, that allowed them to get ahead. And again, I'm not going to go into details. I'm not going to attack anyone. I don't. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. All I'm saying is that most people who are multi-multi-billionaires, they didn't get that money because they started out washing dishes or whatever. They were in the right place at the right time, or they made the right deal with the devil, or the right person gave them insider knowledge on something, or they started the right company that, again, they knew they'd be able to spin and make money off of. And again, I've got no hate for them. I've got no malice. It's not a hater thing or be, me being salty. It's just facts, and if you don't believe me, look at the way that they treat us as the working class. And yes, I when I say working class, I don't care if you're making two or three hundred thousand dollars a year. To them, that's chump change. You're working class. You know, people may think, "Oh well, uh, I've I've made it in life because I've got a few million dollars," but compared to those people at the top of the pyramid that are basically taking a whiz on us, you're nothing. You're no better than uh, the guy that lives in Mumbai and is working in the street, uh, 20 hours a day, or you know, 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day, uh, retreading shoes or something like that. We're we're all the same. We're all uh, below them, and don't doubt for a minute that that's the reality. It is. They can get on TV and smile and grin and everything else and act how they want to do all these great things for humanity. No, sorry, they've all got a purpose at mind, whether it's making money. Whether it's control, whether it's, uh, yeah, just keeping that dominance that they have through the almighty dollar, they've all got ulterior motives. And anyone who thinks that they don't, again, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn for sale. If you want to buy it, I'll sell it to you cheap. How's that? So, again, folks, um, please don't ever think I'm being condescending or thinking I'm better than you. It's just that I've been exposed to these things for a lot longer and I've known a lot of people. Again, I've known people in government i've known people in high finance and everything else and it's a bit like that matrix movie with that uh with the blue pill you know the red pill and the blue pill it's a bit like that once you've seen it it's hard to unsee it and once you know how the world really works um yeah it's it, it's hard for me not to be cynical when i see things like certain multi-billionaires telling me that they've got the best interest of the world uh you know in in mind, and all of a sudden they're virologists and everything else um but anyway, we'll move on from that. I'm starting to get a bit worked up, so I've got some really positive news that I want to share with you i'm uh, I am announcing another chapter president tonight on the Paranormal Sun, an excellent friend of the show who's been very supportive, and I'm very appreciative of all their kindness checking in on me, and through my migraines and everything else, and also just generally an enthusiastic person of the topics I cover and very supportive. So to two a day in India, you're now officially the chapter president for the Paranormal Sun in India, you're the field correspondent, so if you've got any stories, anything you hear about, if there's something from India you want me to investigate, by all means you know where to get a hold of me. And so now you go on the Wall of Fame with all of the other chapter presidents, and in your honor tonight, I've actually picked out a couple of articles for the News of the Damned that I'm going to cover over for you, too. And with that being said, folks, before I get any more sidetracked or any more aggravated or anything else, we're going to get straight into the News of the Damned, and then I'm going to get into those CIA files for you, so stand by for the News of the Damned. So for those of you who may be hearing this for the first time, each time I do a news segment, it's called The News of the Damned, and that name is in homage to a gentleman from the early 1900s named Charles Fort. Now Charles Fort was one of the first people who started investigating a lot of the things that I cover, the paranormal, the strange, things like sea serpents, lights in the sky, ghost ships, and all the sort, and he started cataloging and gathering this information from around the world, from magazines and newspapers and other periodicals. And then he later released them in a series of books, so that you and I and people who enjoy this sort of thing could start to connect the dots and see a lot of these instances. He was one of the first people, you know, way before the days of the Internet, that actually, for example, would be able to draw conclusions about people seeing UFOs in a certain area, or strange rain falling across certain countries. And yes, he definitely theorized on certain things, but the general idea was, here's all of this information, here's the newspaper it came from, etc. He was fastidious about citing his sources, and then he would say at the end, here's my kind of theories or conclusions, and then he'd leave it up to you as the reader the same way that I leave it up to you as the listener. So each week, during the main topic episodes, and every once in a while during a bonus like this, if I cover news, then it's the News of the Damned, and that's where that name comes from. I've got a couple articles here that I cut from the Lonnie Zamora episode from the Wednesday episode, because they were just, it was going to run the show a bit long. So first I'll get into those, and then I've got a couple of special surprises for two a day in celebration of her becoming the president, the chapter president for India. So the first one here was actually sent to me from Dave in Missouri. So again, Dave, another chapter president from the old 77. Thanks for sending it to me this particular article. I'm not sure if it's the one that Dave sent me, or I just looked up the topic because I knew the story. Uh, But it is interesting nonetheless. Now this one comes from CNN. So this one says, uh, Stonehenge may be a rebuilt stone circle from Wales, new research suggests. And this is by Katie Hunt from CNN. And it was updated on the 12th of February. So it says, 5,000 years after Stonehenge was built, archaeologists have finally pinpointed exactly where the blue stones that form part of the imposing UK monument came from and how they were unearthed. The researchers revealed in 2019 that the stones came from an ancient quarry on the north side of the Preseli Hills in western Wales, which meant the 43 huge blue stones had been moved a staggering distance of 150 miles. Now archaeologists have said they think some of the bluestones first formed another stone circle close to the same area as the quarries and were dismantled and rebuilt as part of Stonehenge on the Salisbury Plain. The identical 110 meter diameter of stone, sorry, the identical 110 meter diameters of stone circle known as Wan Mon and the enclosing ditch of Stonehenge suggest that at least part of the circle was brought from its location in Wales to the salisbury plain according to new research published in the journal antiquity what's more both stone circles are aligned to the midsummer sum- summer s- solstice sunrise <laughs> a bit of sh- a bit of she sells seashells by the seashore and one of the bluestones at stonehenge has an unusual cross section that matches one of the holes left at wan mon the paper said Chippings in that hole are of the same rock type as the Stonehenge stone, it added. Stonehenge is made of two types of stone, larger Saracen stones and smaller bluestone monoliths. Some 43 bluestones survive today at Stonehenge, though many of these remain buried beneath the grass. They were thought to have been the first to first be erected at Stonehenge 5,000 years ago, centuries before the larger Saracen stones were brought over just 15 miles from the monument. The Stones of Stonehenge Research Project is led by Mike Parker Pearson, a professor at University College in London. Discovering the dismantled stone circle at Wan Mon happened through trial and error, the news statement said. Only four stones are visible at the site. It was thought in 2010 that they were part of a stone circle, but initial geophysical studies were inconclusive, and the team decided to focus their energies elsewhere. A trial excavation of the site in 2017 found two empty stone holes, but ground radar surveys were still unsuccessful, leaving the team with no choice but to do it the old-fashioned way and dig. Excavations in 2018 revealed empty stone holes, confirming that the four remaining stones were part of a former circle. Dating of charcoal and sediments in the holes around the Wanmon Stone Circle was erected around 3400 BC, the study says. The paper also suggests that the stones may have been moved as people migrated from that part of Wales, with the first people to be buried at Stonehenge, thought likely to have once lived in this region. My guess is that Wanmon was not the only stone circle that contributed to Stonehenge, said Parker Pearson in a new statement. Maybe there are more in in Preseli waiting to be found. Who knows? Someone will be lucky enough to find them. So yeah, again, folks, I'm on the record. I've said it many times. I'm sure that we know very little about what's happened in our history. We like to pretend that we know so much and we understand all these things that have gone on. But again, just in human history alone, there's so much I'm sure we don't know about or we've gotten wrong. And look, it's great that we're confident confident in our science and in our other um, disciplines as a species. But me personally, again, I just think that We're a bit uh, overblown in our surety of history, science, etc. Me personally, I just think there's so many things out there that we can't answer, and institutions in general don't like people picking at those things that don't have answers. They like to gloss it over and explain it away. So anyway, I'll leave it at that, because I'm about to go off into another tangent, and then (laughs) then we'll we'll have an hour-plus show just about a few articles in some of these CIA files, so I'm going to cut it brief there and move on to the next article. Now, this next article I found quite interesting, and I know I've got several listeners that are quite interested in the sciences, so I think that you will find this very interesting. This one comes from Wired.com, and this is titled, Researchers Levitated a Small Tray Using Nothing But Light, and this is from Max G. Levy. One day, a magic carpet based on this light-induced flow technology could carry climate sensors high into the atmosphere, when permitting. In the basement of a University of Pennsylvania engineering building, Mohsen Azadi and his lab mates huddled around a set of blinding LEDs set beneath an acrylic vacuum chamber. They stared at the lights, their cameras, and what they hoped would soon be some action from the two tiny plastic plates sitting inside the enclosure. We didn't know what we were expecting to see, says Azadi, a mechanical engineering PhD candidate, but we hope to see something. Let's put it this way, they wanted to see if those plates would levitate, lofted solely by the power of light. Light induced flow, or photophoresis, isn't a break breakthrough on its own. Researchers have used this physical phenomenon to float invisible aerosols and sort particles in microfluidic devices, but they have never been moved and o- they have never before moved an object big enough to grasp much less lifted anything that can carry objects itself. And it worked. When the two samples lifted, Azadi said, there was this gasp between all four of us. The mylar plates, each as wide as a pencil's diameter, hovered thanks to nothing but the energy from the light below. According to a paper published today in Science Advances, energy from the LEDs heats up the Mylar's specially coated underbelly, energizing air particles under the plastic and propelling the plates away with a tiny but mighty gust. The engineering the engineered structure is the first instance of a stable photophoretic light flight, and Azadi's accompanying theoretical model can simulate how different flying plates would behave in the atmosphere. In particular, the model indicates that a levitating plate could mosey 50 miles overhead while carrying sensor-sized cargo. It's an idea the lab members have floated as a way to study weather and climate, although atmospheric scientists say the idea is still preliminary and will face some daunting meteorological challenges. There's a reason why scientists would want to get a tiny sensor into the underexplored mesosphere, which lies between 31 and 53 miles above your head. Sometimes it's called ignorosphere in joke, says Igor Bargatin, a mechanical engineering professor at Penn and Azadi supervisor who led the study. We just don't have access to it. You can send a rocket for a few minutes at a time, but that's very different from doing measurements using airplanes or balloons. We haven't ignored the mesosphere because it's uninteresting. We've ignored it because it's out of reach. The denser air below it affords enough lift to planes and balloons, and the thermosphere above it is thin enough that air drag doesn't burn orbiting satellites. The mesosphere gets the worst of both worlds. It's too thin for lift, but too thick to burn an orbiter. But thick enough to burn an orbiter, sorry. That's a drag for scientists because the mesosphere is loaded with interesting phenomena like red, like weird blue and red lightning and the microscopic shrapnel of millions of meteors shooting stars scorching through it every day. The chemistry in that layer is also valuable for scientists interested in tracking ozone damage, according to Daniel Marsh, an atmospheric scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Solar storms cause energetic particles to enter the mesosphere, creating nitric oxide. Marsh wrote in an email to Wired. That nitric oxide seeps lower into the atmosphere and eats away at Earth's protective stratospheric ozone. Sending scientific feelers directly into the zone requires engineering a whole new way of flying, Bargatan says, and using light makes sense because of its intrinsic energy. Scientists have tested the idea of catching light particles, momentum, and solar sails to travel into deep space at 10% of light speed but that idea collapses in the mesosphere's gravity. Over the last century, physicists have gotten more comfortable using light to move matter in other ways. Lasers can nudge proteins and beads, sort cells and pluck molecules like tweezers, for instance. Pretty much all the research that has been done so far focused on microscopic particles, says Bargatin. His lab published a paper in Advanced Materials last year reporting a hollow aluminum-based sheet that could hover over an air cushion but this new study comes with higher hopes, designing a flight system so stable that researchers could simply let those devices loose in the mesosphere. Azadi began with the basics. Diagramming levitator designs and charting which physical forces might cause light to propel a surface. He ran through experiments as simple as imagining throwing spheres against a wall. What can we do to the surface of the wall So when we throw a sphere at a wall and it bounces back, it bounces back faster, says Azadi. I would just have a piece of paper and a pen and try to sketch different things, he continues, and make those very simple thought experiments into mathematical, rigorous formulas. The team eventually landed on a design, a flat disc with two distinct faces. For the top they chose mylar, that shiny plastic used in thermal blankets, and weather balloons. Mylar is cheap, light, and smooth and some versions are unfathomably thin, only 500 nanometers thick in this case. That's 50 times thinner than household cling wrap, and so slim that it's actually transparent. For the underside, Bargatin's team coated the mylar surface with a shag carpet of tiny rod-shaped carbon threads called carbon nanotubes. Each nanotube is only a few atoms across, and about as long as a strand of hair is wide. After an ambient gas module molecule from the air collides with a warm object, it picks up a small amount of energy and bounces off faster than it arrived. Thermo- uh, thermodynamics dictate that a hotter particle is a faster particle, but not every surface transfers that energy to gases equally. Some, like a smooth sheet of mylar, spring gas molecules away with only a little boost. Other surfaces, like a tangled mess of carbon nanotubes, can trap and heat gas molecules, so much that they fire away a lot faster. When this jet black carbon carpet absorbs light, its tangled mess of nanotubes warms. Gas molecules that slip into the shag then collide with so many nooks that they heat up more than the molecules ricocheting off the smooth upper surface. This rush of molecules shooting down from the bottom surface faster than up from the top creates a lift force, says Bargatin, You throw enough molecules down, you're going to create a jet, says Bargatin, That's what helicopters do. On that day in late 2019, when Azadi and the rest of the team gathered around the vacuum chamber to try out the nanotube design for the first time, Azadi let the mini magic carpets float a few millimeters above the surface at mesosphere-like pressure. In one instance, two mylar plates circled each other as though they were dancing. We decided to name, name the move because it worked so beautifully, Azadi said. It looked like two of them danced with the same very harmonic dance. It was like, let's call it, tango. By surrounding one central LED with a ring of more intense LEDs set beneath the vacuum chamber, they were also able to demonstrate stable levitation. This setup keeps the levitating plate confined to an optical trap. If the plate begins tilting and zooming away, the light boundary forces it back to the center. Levitating without this balancing force is like balancing a pea on the underside of a spoon. When they said that they have a centimeter-sized object that they can levitate using photophoretic forces i was very skeptical says yael reuchman a physicist at tel aviv university who was not involved in the study reuchman studies optical trapping and has used lasers to levitate dust particles conventional photophoresis experiments rely on a temperature gradient a hot face and a cold face to propel objects this restricts an object to only moving away from an energy source nixing hopes of sun-powered levitation but she says Bargatin's idea is different. Regardless of where the light originates in relation to the levitator, it will reach the down-facing nanotubes and provide lift. What they what, what they did doesn't depend on the temperature gradient, which gives us very small forces, but depends on something completely different. She says, I think this is actually potentially very useful and innovative. It seems simple, but it's not simple. And then there's a bit more, folks, but this is quite a long article. And again, I'll have a link in the show notes, but it is interesting. Uh, Levitation caught my eye, and this is very much reality and nuts and bolts versus smoke and mirrors. It's not somebody just saying, hey, we've levitated something, and then no proof, not discussing how they did it or anything else. I find it interesting that they've gone through and taken you step by step how they did it, but I'm not going to keep reading any longer. Or people will probably start falling asleep. I'm sure some there'll be somebody out there going, Oh yeah, that's I love it. But you know, you can you can go and find that article. Um I'll have a link in the show notes of course so you can go and read it if you'd like to read the uh last five or six paragraphs there. So the next article here and the first one for two a day is from the Hindustan Times. And uh, this is an older article, so both of the articles I've got are a few years old, but as you can imagine, like any major paper, it's not like they've got UFO and paranormal stuff all the time. But this one was interesting, and I definitely learned something. And this has got some photos, so I'd highly encourage you to go over and check this out. Now, as far as India goes in UFOs, I don't know a whole lot, being fully honest I mean, I know about historic cases, things like the Vimanas and claims that they were basically flying craft that kind of equate to modern day UFOs. But uh, I, I really, I thought about it and I was thinking and I thought, I really can't think of any modern UFO cases out of India, but there've been some excellent ones. So the first one here is, it's a photo from the Taj Mahal. And this one says, over the Taj Mahal along a coastal road in Larak, India has a dramatic and much debated history of unidentified flying objects. And this was by the HT correspondent, and it was updated on May the 7th, 2017. So it says, UFO sightings in India are more sporadic than in the U.S., but we still have iconic images such as this one taken near the Taj Mahal in Agra. We don't know who clicked. The Taj Mahal photo, but it's become famous in Indian ufology circles, says Hitesh Yadav, 21, a BT student from Gurgaon, an active UFO investigator and editor of UFO Magazine India. Over the Taj Mahal, along a coastal road in Ladakh, India has a dramatic and much-debated history of unidentified flying objects. Here's a few eerie examples. Now the next one here is a very interesting-looking photo. And this one says, An unidentified object spotted in Banswara, Rajasthan, in 2008. Eight locals reported seeing an unfamiliar craft in the afternoon sky. They described the UFO as hat-shaped object with bright underlighting. And yeah, that it, it is very interesting photo there. These are some really good photos, folks. Um, So what I'm saying is, if you think you're just going to see a few grainy lights in the night sky, these are really good. Now this next one... um. I always leave things with the benefit of doubt, but, you know, I always leave things up to the benefit of your own interpretation. But this photo does look photoshopped to me at first glance, but if they investigated the photo and they looked into it, um, I'm sure they would have found that out if it was or wasn't. And this one says, A photograph taken in Kanur, Kerala, by Divya Sebastian, an Army officer Major Sebastian Zechariah, while on vacation. And it's got their car, and it's kind of parked along a beach road. And then you've got the sea. And above the sea in the background, there's a a flying saucer, for lack of a better word, and one of the classic ones with the bell-shaped dome. Interesting photo. Now, see, I didn't know this. So Billy Meyer, I haven't talked about him on the show, but he's one of the most polarizing UFO, um, they used to call them experiencers, in history. So Billy Meyer claimed that he was being visited by people off the top of my head, I want to say, from the Pleiades, but I could have that wrong. Now, Billy Meyer was Swiss. Now, many people have said that it was all a hoax and they've proven it. And I'm going to be brutally honest, folks. I haven't dug into it that much to know for sure. But I do know that those photos, if they are real photos and if it wasn't a hoax, are some of the clearest photos of UFOs. But I didn't realize that Billy Meyer spent time in India. And that's what this article is talking about. So it says in 1964, Billy Meyer, one of the world's most infamous UFO researchers, good choice of words, traveled to India and shot a series of photographs that allegedly show UFOs over Delhi skies, above or three of them. So the first one has got about um, eight uh, points of light that look like they're in motion. The next one all looks like an oval shape, like maybe a flying saucer, but almost like a uh, uh, a football or a rugby ball, and the last one looks very similar. So very interesting, and I didn't know that. Technology is now aiding in the search for answers. Some ufologists are using satellite imagery, apps, and online tools to zero in on odd phenomena, such as these urban crop circles in Tirupur, Thir- Tamil Nadu. So, yeah, look, a very short article, some good photos, definitely worth checking out. So, you know, I would encourage you to click on the link and head over there and check those out. Now, to a day, if I've mispronounced anything, I do apologize. I do my best, but, uh, you know, I always put my hand up if I mispronounce something. And if I stand corrected, I'll try and get it right next time. Now, so our last article here, before we get into our CIA files, is this is a good article. Again, it's about UFOs in India. And this one came out on May the 11th, 2017. And this was from Roshni Nair, and it says, The truth is out there. Tales from India's UFO investigators. Lights in the sky. Levitating beings. Hard science versus conjecture. Meet the guys trying to sift the crazies from the true witnesses in their search for unidentified flying objects. At the stroke of the midnight hour when the world slept, uh, Sunita Yadav woke to a levitating alien. That's interesting. She watched, petrified, as it hovered a foot above the ground, just behind her home, standing over four feet tall with gray skin and big black eyes. It proceeded from the Yadav's backyard towards their front door before, as her son Hitesh remembers, it just vanished. In the 15 years since, the humanoid has made numerous other appearances around the Western Command Hospital in Panchkula, some 10 kilometers away from Chandigarh chandy Chandigar, sorry it's now a mascot residents in the area believe it's lucky to spot it says hitesh 20 now a high a, a tech student living in in gergoan in their sketch the alien looks like a swarthy dwarf but hitesh remains convinced that what he saw was an extraterrestrial and he spends much of his free time trying to prove it hitesh runs the free bi-monthly e-zine ufo magazine india is developer of the ufology app and founder of disclosure team india which investigates ufo sightings and encounters in the country disclosure has grown to 200 members since it was set up in january of 2016 including 22 from the u.s and uk he says the website has a form where people can report their sightings in detail this form has been filled four times but our investigators hear many stories from locals on the ground he stresses I'm currently researching an alien abductee case in in Chhattisgarh. Hitesh says, I don't care what people think because my parents and sister are accepting, but my relatives don't know what I do. If they did, they'd surely call me crazy. And I feel for you, man. In the inaugural March issue of UFO Magazine India, columnist Krishan Vaishnav deconstructs the drake equation proposed by american astrophysicist frank drake a mathematical formula used to estimate the number of detectable extraterrestrials in the milky way i'm a ufologist because i'm a scientist even the indian military has reported sightings says the 27 year old entrepreneur from nagar Rajasthan. we know little about what lies beyond our own solar system amen fully agree with that why dismiss possibilities altogether fully agree In his teens, and with the X-Files etched in his psyche, Vashnov signed up to help create 3D maps for NASA's moon missions, analyze asteroid samples for the Planetary Society, and study radio data for the SETI at-home project, the UC Berkeley offshoot of SETI, or Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute. But his turning point was March 2008, just two months after he'd set up TOP, the Other Planet Research Group to investigate UFO sightings, Vaishnav heard of a sighting in Banswara village, where eight locals reported seeing an unfamiliar craft in the afternoon sky. Six days later, Vaishnav was there. The villagers described the UFO as a hat-shaped object with a bright underlight. Okay, so he went and covered that case that I'd already talked about with the photo. We also found an odd-shaped stone that looked like nothing else in the radius we scanned. Image evidence of this encounter is the best you'll find in India, he says. Vaishnav is now founder of XP Technologies and, Sh- and Shakti Innovative Products. He has filed four patents for a solar satellite plant, non-conventional wireless mobile charging, touchscreen technology and a next-gen user interface system. Tech research is his bread and butter, but UFOlogy reminds his Danish pastry remains his Danish pastry. I'm intrigued by why many sightings are from Rajasthan and West Bengal and the Konga pass in, in Ladakh He muses, it's also a remote military base, so you never know. On October 26, 2014, at 4.55 a.m., a a man looks out of his window in Thane and sees a horizontal row of red, yellow, and green lights that blink but remain stationary for several minutes, then disappear. He records footage on his cell phone. On November 7, 2014, a fast-moving object is captured hovering over Bengalura, Framed against a full moon. It stays there for nearly an hour, then disappears as suddenly as it appeared. These cases are among 60 sightings in 2014 that were assigned to Kumarasan Ramathan after he joined Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON. So, MUFON, you've heard me talk about it on here many times. MUFON's one of the biggest UFO networks in the world. Ramanathan is a senior technical engineer with a Chennai-based IT firm who blogs as Alien Seeker on WordPress. In 2012, he became India's first certified UFO investigator under MUFON, the largest non-profit investigating UFOs with 3,000 members worldwide. As they say in the X-Files, I wanted to believe, but the tools have been taken away. MUFON employs scientific methods, not conjecture, says the 36-year-old, You have to renew your membership and purchase manuals every year, then take an exam and score at least 80% to become a qualified investigator. The test is a mix of objective and multiple-choice questions, spanning subjects such as how to interact with eyewitnesses and the plan of action if a witness claims to have an encounter. They present hypothetical situations to gauge if you'd make for a good investigator. He explains, All tests are examined at the MUFON headquarters in Newport Beach, California. If you make the cut, you're given an ID and certificate proclaiming you're licensed. But it's not all love and sunshine. Out of every hundred cases, about 97 end up being fake. Optical illusions, doctored images, or everyday objects mistakenly identified as otherwise, he admits. This teaches you discernment. Yep, and I've said it before. I, I feel that it's kind of between 3 and 5% of these cases where people genuinely see something that we can't explain normally. Now, an independent ufologist, after working with MUFON for two years, he will visit Anakheti near Coimbatore, to study a spurt of unexplained objects reported since 2011. My family always supported me, he replies. When asked what people make of his other job, some collegians call me Jadu for devoting so much time to ufologies. But who cares about acquaintances? Yeah, fully agree. At 8.28 p.m. on December 15, 1987, six-year-old kamal pont stood on the terrace of his Deradun home and observed a large red light soaring directly overhead no it wasn't a plane a helicopter or a prank he says before you've asked the question whatever it was stayed there a while and made no sound the incident would spur the self-professed sky watcher and fan of star trek the x-files mythology and conspiracy theories to scour the internet for all things ufo and e t Then in 2014, he photographed and claimed what he claims to be a mothership taking off and landing on the moon. From there on, PONT goes full steam ahead. I even mailed NASA about it, but didn't hear from them, until a month later, when I got an email from someone in Houston asking me to stay away, he claims. Wouldn't be shocked at all. Do you have this email or a snapshot of it? No, my system got corrupt a day later, and some of my videos vanished. My computer had been tampered with. Now that is interesting. On the job with a UFO investigator. The first thing to do when you receive a, port, a report about a UFO sighting is rule out what's explainable, says Kumarasan, who has served as chief investigator with Mufon in India. Phenomena like strange lights are more explainable than not. These can be caused by anything from crackers to iridium flares caused by moving satellites. I'm assuming when he says crackers, he means firecrackers. Online tools like Flight Radar and Heavens Above can help determine if there was a passing craft or astronomical occurrence in the area at the time of the sighting. Interviews with eyewitnesses are generally conducted via email or over the phone. Only sightings that are compelling require us to go on site, he says. What tools does a UFO investigator use? Hatesh Yudov, who is self-trained, lists a film camera, compass, telescope, tape recorder, electromagnetic field or EMF sensor, Geiger counter for radiation, scintillation counter for ionizing radiation, and plaster of Paris to make molds in case impressions are found. So that would be where a craft landed. Pont, a computer science lecturer at a private university in Dehradun, is what naysayers would call a tinfoil hatter, conspiracy theorist, and yeah, I hate that term. He believes NASA and the U.S. are involved in a cover-up, and that alien technology was obtained from the Roswell crash, he also claims to have CE5 communication with ETs, that is telepathic communication between himself and aliens. It's not as insane as it sounds, folks. Trust me. I'll um, I'll get into that in future episodes. My mother and wife have been have seen everything, and know I'm not lying. Pond says distant relatives call me "sunky" or "madcap," but it doesn't affect me. the The 36-year-old father of a toddler who works with both Disclosure and Top Research Group is currently looking into sightings in Ranichari village, Tiri Galwar Garwal District. The events are so common locals call the beings Parian, or fairies. They also tell their children not to step out after dark lest they be taken away. His colleagues at the University Pont says have no qualms with his interests and theories, and even if they did, he wouldn't break in he wouldn't break into a sweat. Every time I look at the sky, I feel like something and someone Wants to communicate with me, he shares. No one can take that away from me. Pushkar Vaidya likes his coffee cold and his feuds hot. From 2007 to 2015, the astrobiologist was embroiled in a scientific tug-of-war with astrophysicist and author Giant Narlikar. The Bone of Contention, Narlikar's Hypothesis Supporting Panspermia, the theory that life exists throughout the universe and is distributed through asteroids, comets, and meteoroids, In short, life on Earth may have come from extraterrestrial sources. A truce was eventually called when Vaidya founded the Indian Astrobiology Research Center, or IARC, in Mumbai, for which Narlikar now serves as mentor. I'm open to the possibilities of ET, microbial or intelligent life. I just didn't think there there was enough evidence, says Vaidya. If anything, panspermia research is one of IARC's focus areas. Vaidya is no ufologist. The 36-year-old straddles the no-man's land between belief and skepticism. His bond with Arthur C. Clarke, one of the world's most prolific sci-fi authors, has much to do with it. When I was 16 and studying in Sri Lanka, I wrote In Search of Aliens. Arthur C. Clarke lived in Colombo, and as an ardent fan, I went to his home because I wanted him to pen the foreword to my book. He laughs. He didn't write it, but that kicked off a two-year association. So yeah, I was going to say, as soon as I heard Arthur C. Clarke, I knew that uh, he was living in Sri Lanka for many of the later years of his life, uh, because he would host a lot of programs out of there. And when I was a teenager, I got to see some of those older shows, like uh, Mysterious World and that. Vaidya credits Clarke for bringing wonderment and adventure to science. Science is now increasingly taking on a tone of finality, especially when it comes to the search for alien life, he feels. Again, fully agree, you've heard me go on and on in in this episode. As a matter of fact, I got no problem with people saying this is our best guess or this is the theory I believe, but I get tired of hearing people saying this is how it is when the reality is we don't know. But he also throws the gauntlet to ufologists. UFO phenomenon is real from a research perspective. The problem is, how do people go about it? If you look at everything as alien, you're better calling yourself a flying saucer investigator, he reasons. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. A long discussion touches upon everything from cattle mutilations to the Kardashev scale, which hypothesizes that the most intelligent civilizations can harness energies on a galactic or even cosmic scale to participate in astral travel. There is a lot Pushkar Vaidya believes in. What he's waiting for is substantiation. As they say in the X-Files, I wanted to believe, but the tools have been taken away, he smiles. Want to review the evidence? Here's a reported UFO sighting from Chennai. So that's the end of the article. I am just very briefly going to watch this video. It's on YouTube. And again, if you, you want to see this video, if you just go down about three quarters of the way down this article, there's a YouTube, you know, just box. It's not a link. It's an embedded player. So I'm just going to very quickly watch this and give you my comments on it. So they're, they're kind of standing in the background and they're looking out over the night sky and kind of zooming in and out. And I, I see some flashing lights. I guess that's what they're trying to... Ah, zo- oh, okay, there we go. So now here's a light. So something is appearing in the sky. It doesn't look so much as like it's been flying along and it sh- it's it's like it just kind of came out of nowhere, like whether it came out from behind the clouds or what. And boy, it is bright. Um, A couple of looking at these lights, like one's got three lights and the other one's got more than that, probably at least five or six. And they look circular, so it looks like your classic circular flying saucer or disc. But yeah, uh, very interesting. And again, I'd encourage you to go and check out this video. And it looks like there's a little light coming out from the bottom, like a scout craft or something. And again, this may be uh, doctored or who knows, but it's interesting nonetheless. And again, like so many other classic sightings I've seen, you had these lights in configuration. Now they're kind of drifting apart. They're moving apart. They move back together. Yeah, it's yeah, that's pretty good footage. And again, I'm not the I'm not the video footage expert to sit here and break it all down for you, and I don't have the tools to do it. But look, it's very interesting. It started out as kind of two sets bands of light, and then it broke up into multiples, and now it's like three separate bands of light, and two of them are moving away from the third, and the third is staying stationary. So it's look, it's really interesting footage. I think it's worth seeing. Um, Yeah, there's four lights in the first one, all in a row, and they're kind of fading out. The second one's three, and it's kind of fading out. So again, I don't know if it's moving behind a cloud or it's quote-unquote winking out. And here's the last one is a series of four lights. So yeah, go and check that out. Definitely interesting. So to a day, I hope that you enjoyed those articles. And again, congratulations for becoming our chapter president in India. And with that, we'll now get into these CIA files. I'll probably just read a few folks because this episode is going to be quite long already and I don't mind doing that, but I don't want to overwhelm you with all of this stuff. So we aren't going to do a full rehash, folks, on the background of this stuff, but basically there's a website called The Black Vault, which was founded in the 90s by a man named John Greenwald. He's done several FOIA requests to the CIA for anything to do with flying saucers, UFOs, etc., and that's where these documents come from. Now, as I go through and read these documents out on air, I give them a number. So if there's a certain document you'd like to ask me questions about, or you'd like to know more about, or if you'd like a copy of that document, when you get a hold of me, just make sure that you quote the number, okay? And I'll repeat the number several times as I read through them. So now we're going to get into it. And the first document here is number 34. Okay, just reading through it. Again, this is one of those that you can see. It's got the circulation list at the top, so it's been sent to the FBI base in Okinawa, Fort Bragg, uh, FBI rest in Virginia, uh, and just looking for a date here. Okay, country, USSR, and this one is document number 34. Uh, So program summary, Moscow in Mandarin, Moscow Radio Moscow in Mandarin, which is interesting in and of itself. And this one is from the 19th of October, 1991. Okay, so Ukraine to join Economic uh, Union Treaty. Pankin, 18th October, arrives in Syria. So what I, I do, do, folks, is I go through and I find our connection to flying saucer, UFO, etc. But I also tend to give you a bit of a background of what was going on in the world at that time pertaining to the documents. US to pull nuclear arms from South Korea. Which I don't know for sure, but I'd say that they've got them there now. Uh, they've either, either put them back or they never pulled them out. Uh, Lithuania wants Soviet interior troops to pull out as scheduled. Here we go. Meeting of UFO experts opens in Moscow. Okay, so that's interesting. Uh, let's see. So what I'm going to do here, folks, is I'm just going to use the magic of editing. I'm going to pause for a minute, and I'm going to see if I can find anything about this quote-unquote UFO meeting in Moscow, and then come back to you. Okay, folks, so I'm back. I did have a pretty good troll, but I can't really find anything with that date of October 1991, as far as a UFO meeting in Moscow. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, but as we all know, a lot of these things don't get carried over to the West. You know, they're Written in Russian or Cyrillic, and it doesn't necessarily get translated over to English. So I'm sure there was this meeting, but I just can't find out much more about it, and I don't want to spend all afternoon looking into it. So now we're going to move on to the next one. Just see here. Okay, so this is document number 35. Okay, Dr. Leon Davidson, 64 Project Street, or Prospect Street, I think. White Flats, New York. I was saying Leon Davidson sounded familiar, and I've covered him over in one of these former episodes about this stuff. Oh, interesting. On behalf of Mr. Dulles, which would be Alan Dulles, I'm assuming, thank you for your letter of March 11th asking certain inquiries concerning UFOs. Since this object is of primary concern to the Department of the Air Force, we have... Um... Something your letter to that department for appropriate reply. And as I say, folks, oftentimes with this subject matter, because these documents are so old, it's a bit hard to read sometime with the typing in that. But I do believe that this refers to uh, one of the documents that I read in the last episode or maybe the one before that. But basically, the CIA forwarding it onto the Air Force and saying, toe the line here. And yeah, interesting. Uh, very interesting that um and i would say that i don't know for sure again folks but i'd say a lot of times things like this just get punted from one department to the next and they kind of pass the ball around and play hot potato and try and keep from giving any real answers if they can avoid it so anyway that one was document number 35 this one is document number 36 and this says okay This one, I'm just trying to read this again. It looks like Nigel T., Doctor of Technical Sciences, Assistant Professor. And the top is redacted. Okay, title, Unidentified Flying Object. Source, Soviet Life, number 2, 1965. Topic, tags, Optic Phenomena, Unidentified Flying Object, Meteorite. Abstract, the author, Moscow Aviation Institute. Presents several striking and reliable UFO observations and refutes the theory of U.S. astrophysical Menzel, astrophysicist Menzel, and others that until recently no scientific study of UFOs has been made in the Soviet Union. He claims that the prevailing view is that UFOs are common optical phenomena in the Earth's atmosphere is wrong, and due to the fact that there was no collection of UFO observations. The general impression was that flying saucers are fantasies, and yes, um, Dr. Menzel did say that. This situation is beginning to change. In 1968, the MOX Publishing House of the USSR Academy of Sciences is scheduled to publish a book entitled Populated Outer Space, edited by a- Academian Boris Konstant- Konstantinov, and I've heard his name before, Vice President of the USSR Academy of Sciences and written by distinguished Soviet and foreign contributors, including Americans. In May of 1967, a sponsoring group of scientists, the military writers, and public figures met to form an unofficial body whose purpose would be to conduct a preliminary scientific investigation of UFOs. Sounds very similar to something like Blue Book or uh, the Condon Report, something like that. The organization, set up in October 1967, is called the UFO Section of the all-Union Cosmonautics Committee, with headquarters at the Central House of Aviation and Cosmonautics in Moscow. Air Force Major General Stol Stolyarov, sorry again it's hard to read this, was elected chairman of the section. The hypothesis that UFOs originated in other worlds, that they are flying craft from planets other than Earth, merits the most serious explanation. Observations show that UFOs behave sensibly in a group formation flight. They maintain a pattern. They are most often spotted over airfields, atomic stations, and other very new engineering installations. On encountering aircraft, they always maneuver so as to avoid direct contact. A considerable list of these uh, severingly intelligent, seemingly intelligent actions gives the impression that UFOs are investigating— perhaps even record-ordering. Curiously enough, the number of UFO observations increases as Mars approaches this Earth. Is this pure coincidence? That is very interesting. Um, Now, I've never went into it on the show. I'm sure many of you have heard of it, but there was a Russian probe in the 60s or 70s that approached the Martian moon, I want to say Phobos, and as it got close, it basically looked like something came towards it and then it went offline so look interesting some people think that ufos have appeared in the earth's atmosphere only during the past two decades this is not the case again we've shown time and time again that that is not the case the ufo phenomena has been observed throughout the history of mankind there are medieval and ancient reports strikingly similar to ours (laughs) couldn't agree more Among the earlier UFO reports, as an example, may be well-documented observations of a large saucer in 1882 and a procession of bolides in 1913. These reports still await investigation. The most remarkable UFO phenomena is the famous Tunguska meteorite. In recent years, Soviet scientists have established that the Tunguska explosion had every parameter of an atmospheric nuclear blast. The USSR Academy of Sciences reports... Volume 172, numbers 4 and 5, 1967, include studies by Alexei Zolotov which attempt to prove that the Tunguska body could not be a meteorite or a comet. In the summer of 1967, the Joint Institutes of Nuclear Research at Dubin's, yeah, sorry, I can't quite read it, D-U-B-N, or at least it's D-U-B for sure, published a study by Vladimir Likidov, who concludes that the Tunguska blast left considerable res- residual radioactivity. Finally, as recently as 1966, after analyzing the sum total of observations on the Tunguska body's flight, the writers showed that before the blast, the Tunguska body described in the atmosphere a tremendous area of about 375 miles in extent. In can't read that. That is, carried out a maneuver. All these new results warrant the conclusion that the Tunguska body seems to have been an artificial flying craft from another planet. And then redacted, redacted, redacted. Should this be finally confirmed by investigations now in progress, the significance of the Tunguska disaster would be in inestimable. Yep. But this incidentally will pose new problems. If we are indeed being studied by creatures from other planets... What is their purpose? Why are they so studiously avoiding any direct contact? Is their unsociability the result of so high a level of development that they study us? Um, that height, just as we look upon and study ants. Yes, yeah, sorry, it's just hard to read some of this. Or is there still the possibility of common understanding, since we are born in the same universe and obey the same laws of nature? The study of UFOs may lead to quite different conclusions and present mankind with quite different problems. The important thing now is for us to discard any preconceived notions about UFOs and to originate or or, or, organize on a global scale a calm, sensation-free, and strictly scientific study of this strange phenomenon. The subject and sins of the investigation are so serious that they justify any efforts. It goes without saying that international cooperation is vital. And then three lines redacted. Wow, that is that is a very interesting document. Author Nigel F., looks like Nigel F., Doctor of Technical Sciences, Assistant Professor. Wow, uh, <laughs> that's definitely a smoking gun type uh, document. That's one of the best ones I've seen out of these CIA files. Um, I remember reading a book when I was a boy, and the book would have been written in the 60s or 70s, and they were hypothesizing that perhaps Tunguska, which was this event in 1911, which leveled miles and miles of force in Siberia, perhaps this was a UFO uh, craft that had entered the atmosphere and the engine exploded, you know, their fuel source, whatever, exploded in a basically a nuclear event and leveled all this forest, and that the aliens or whatever they were, Flew this craft to Siberia because they knew how remote it was. Wow, uh, interesting one, definitely. But anyway, that one is document number 36, if you'd like to know more about it or if you want a copy of it. Okay, folks, so I'm going to try and plow through the last couple here uh, because we're already over an hour, so what's a few more minutes to cover over a couple more? So that was number 36, the one about Tunguska, which was quite interesting. And now I'm on to document number 37. And this says, Chief Liaison, uh, Olvizian, Chief Applied Science. Yeah, again, this is hard to read. This is from 24th January, 1956. Um, Tabulation on unconventional flying objects sighted near Baku. So Baku would be in, um, I want to say Georgia, but I know that that was the base the 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 major production area for oil in the soviet union and i do want to say it's in uh, maybe it's not in georgia uh i can't remember the country but yeah i definitely know where Baku is okay attached are two copies of our summary and tabulation of subject citing for our recent tolepinus conversation two attachments are for your transmittal to the intelligence components of the departments of the Air Force and Army. For your information, a third copy has also been sent to, yeah, I can't read it, unfortunately, but it's a person's name. Okay, so here we go. Sighting of unconventional flying object, USSR, 4th October, 1955. So definitely it's Baku. Attached is a tabulation of the statements made by each of the party relative to the unidentified flying object seen by them on October 4, 1955 while on the train from Baku to Tiflin, T-I-F-L-I-N. The tabulation has been held for some time, awaiting answers to questions by Source 3, which have just been received and incorporated into the chart. From observation of the chart, it is apparent that, to darkness and the short due to darkness and the short duration of the sighting, the observers were unable to distinguish sufficient details to properly describe the object. Right, so one one and a half hours out of Baku, it looks like nineteen ten. So that'd be seventeen, or or, sorry, seven ten p.m. Uh, After dark, lights were on in train and not yet completely dark sky was clear dark but clear so they basically say the first person saw it six to seven seconds then the other person saw it 90 seconds about five seconds on the ground and the third person just says very short one and a half hours by rail 10 minutes by by from rail from okay again hard just hard to uh read this folks uh, 50 to 60 miles south of Baku, 10 minutes from rail. So it says they saw it on the left of the rail line. Not possible to estimate distance from them. Um, okay, searchlight. Searchlight horizon, large airfield, steel tower, hangars, several searchlights, Caspian Sea still visible. So they could see the Caspian Sea, they could see searchlights, and they could see an airfield round or square, may have stub wings, Uh, triangular with point to rear, round like a partially inflated balloon. That's what these four different people are saying. May have been small as a rocket, one-third size of searchlight visible to the left, about the size of a U.S. jet fighter, and the fourth person says about the size of a U.S. jet fighter. Rotated slowly as it rose, rotation not seen, made three to seven spirals, and rotated slowly okay so then we got colors here greenish yellow, dark object, too dark to see color, shadowy so what I'm seeing here basically is that sorry folks, she had some people on a train from Baku in what at the time was the southern USSR going further south to another city And there were four people, and they saw this craft on the ground, and they saw it going into the air, either at or near a military base, and there were spotlights that followed it. So the spotlights or searchlights were either following it or looking for it. It was about the size of a U.S. fighter at the time. So, you know, think of a fighter jet. um, And some of them saw it spiraling, others didn't. One person said it was greenish-yellow, and everyone else said it was too dark to see. But yeah, um, just another instance of a first-hand UFO sighting in the former USSR. And anyone who, like I say, doesn't think that these things didn't happen in the USSR, as well as the U.S., just doesn't know, that's all. Interesting case, Um, yet another one. And Baku, like I say, Baku, that area would have been full of defensive installations because it's very close to Iran and Turkey and other countries, Obviously, if that's where you're getting most of your oil from, think of in the US, maybe not so much now, but back then, Texas or maybe now Alaska or the Dakotas, you'd have a lot of defensive installations there if you had countries that you thought were hostile nearby. You know, we don't we don't really think of you Canadians as hostile, but if you were in the Soviet Union and you knew that you were bordering countries like Iran and Turkey that were allies of the US or at the very least friendly, Of course, you're going to have lots of defensive installations, and you're also going to be looking for any U.S. planes trying to come over the border there. Um, And there are other things in that area from a strategic consideration at that time. Uh, I don't want to go into it too much because I want to do a show on it about some of the sightings of UFOs in that area for the USSR. So anyway, that document is number 37 if you want to know more. Now we got one more here. So this is document number 38. And this is Chicago site, Washington, from support, case closed. On basis of your conversation with, again, ATIC, XATIC. So again, what does ATIC stand for? JT's got it written here somewhere. I just got to find it really quickly. I know it's sad, folks. I should have a post it note, I should have this pinned on my head. But I've just got papers all over my desk, so I just find it here very quickly. Now it's on one of these, ATIC, Air Technical Intelligence Center. So that's that's the acronym there that we've got. Now back to this. On your basis of your conversation with ATIC, we informed DICS times DC or sorry DCI times DCI's office that Davidson would receive reply. Did you get copy of letter to Davidson? If not, have you been informed that the letter was in fact written? We would like to close this out with sure knowledge that the letter was written. Thanks. So again, this is that same deal with Professor Davidson and this letter, and there seems to be a lot of documentation about this, which tells me someone was very annoyed with it or very concerned, and that's probably because... Professor Davidson kept pushing them on the matter. And it looks like here it's august either April or August 20th um, of 57, looks like, when this was written. So there we go, folks. Five more very interesting documents. Me personally, I would definitely say that document 36, the one about Tunguska, is the most interesting one. But all of them have their own merits. So I hope that you've enjoyed those, folks. And with that being said, enjoy the rest of your weekend. And I'll be back on Wednesday with part two of the Lonnie Zamora case. Until then, take care, stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon.